Welcome to the Robert J. Morgan Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you believe and cherish the Bible and to learn and love Christian history and hymnody. I'm producer Joshua Rowe, introducing your host, Robert J. Morgan. Be sure to visit robertjmorgan.com where you'll find Rob's blog posts, podcast feed, bookstore, free resources, and more. If you've not already, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review. Now here's your host, Robert J. Morgan. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to our series of studies connected with the release of my book, The 50 Final Events in World History, The Bible's Last Words on Earth's Final Days. What is going to happen in the future? Well, the book of Revelation is given to show us that. And the very first verse of Revelation says, This is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. And it's my own conviction, and it's been growing deeper by the month and by the year, that we must understand the book of Revelation better than any other previous generation because we are closer to those events taking place. And in Revelation chapter 16, there is a reference to the Battle of Armageddon. And the Battle of Armageddon is the culminating war in history. It's not just one battle, but it's a three and a half year war in which the man of lawlessness, as Paul called him, or the Antichrist, as John called him, will station his troops with a forward operating base in the north of Israel, in the valley of um, Jezreel, or the valley of Armageddon, and from there he will wage a final war to try to annihilate the land of Israel, the state of the Jewish people, and the city of Jerusalem. Now, why is it that from the days of Cain and Abel, war has been a dominant feature of human life? Here we are, all of us together on this very small little spinning globe, the only known living creatures in the universe. And yet, from the very beginning of human history, we have torn ourselves apart with war. Margaret Macmillan, in her book, War, How Conflict Shaped Us, says, over the century, war has become more deadly with greater impact. There are more of us, we have more resources, and more organized and complex societies. We can mobilize and engage millions in our struggles, and we have a much greater capacity to destroy now than we've ever had before. This is such a strange thing that those of us on this little spinning globe should be so involved so perpetually in war. And right now, all of us are engaged in the terrible invasion of Ukraine by Russia. We're amazed at the brutality that we see and the ruthless mass murdering despot who holds his finger on the nuclear button and we know that the entire world could erupt in an Armageddon at any time. Well, I want to talk about that coming battle of Armageddon. It's referred to, as I said, in Isaiah chapter 16, but we can read about it all through the Bible. In the book of Ezekiel, it is called the Battle of Gog and Magog. 
And I refer to this in my book, The 50 Final Events, and also have an entire article in the appendix of that book referring to the verse-by-verse explanation that I'd like to share about the long-running battle of Gog and Magog, three and a half years in which the Antichrist leads the armies of the world against Israel. But it's not just in uh, in the book of Ezekiel. We also have it in the book of Zechariah. Chapters 12, 13, and 14 are some of the most vivid descriptions of battle in the entire Bible. And it's referring to the battle of the last days and the desperate attempt of the armies of the world to destroy the nation of Israel and thus prevent the return of Jesus Christ. But Isaiah also talks about it. And in this podcast, I just want to show you some sample passages in Isaiah to help alert you to the fact that whenever you're reading in the Bible, and especially in the Old Testament, and you're reading about some battle that seems to be bigger than the immediate description of the battle that is being described in that uh, current context, you're very likely dealing with what we call a double fulfillment or a dual fulfillment of prophecy. Some people call this the law of the double reference. What is the law of the double reference? Well, let me give you an example. If you'll turn with me to the book of Joel, this is one of the minor prophets, and I'll give you a moment if you're following along in your Bible to, uh, to turn there with me. But I want to show you something in the book of Joel that gives us a very good example of what we're talking about with the double fulfillment of prophecy. So in Joel chapter 2 and verse 28, it says, and afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Well, this was fulfilled. This prediction was fulfilled in the book of Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church and the fire from heaven fell and the people spoke with various tongues and all over Jerusalem, the masses came running to see what was happening. And Peter said, we're not drunk. This is what was predicted by the prophet Joel when he said in Joel chapter 2, And afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Well, Peter saw the Pentecostal event as the fulfillment of Joel chapter 2, this last paragraph of the second chapter of Joel. But obviously, obviously, much of this paragraph is relating to the last days at the time of Jesus, when Jesus will come again and apostate Israel 
will see him whom they have pierced, as we read about in Zechariah 12, 13, and 14. And they will turn to the Lord, and he will pour out his Spirit upon them. And as Jesus comes again, there will be wonders in the heavens and on the earth, and blood and fire and billows of smoke, and the sun will be turned to blood, and the moon to darkness with that coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And the people, the Jewish people, as they call upon the name of the Lord, will be saved. And on Mount Zion, there will be deliverance. I mean, the great fulfillment of this prediction by Joel is not on the day of Pentecost. It is on the day when Jesus comes again. But it is fulfilled in a preliminary way on the day of Pentecost that only simply heralds its ultimate fulfillment later on. So there is a double fulfillment of prophecy. Some people call this already, but not yet. Other people call it the reenactment theory. But all through the Bible, we can see that very many times a prophecy is given, which is fulfilled in a partial way earlier only to be fulfilled in an ultimate way later. And we call this the double fulfillment or dual fulfillment of prophecy. Well, when you read the book of Isaiah, you see that Isaiah is very aware that the Assyrians are coming against Israel in the days of Hezekiah, the king of Judah, and later that the Babylonians are going to come against Israel in the days of the final kings of Judah. And so Isaiah describes these battles, but as you read what he says about the invasion by Assyria and later the invasion by Babylon, you get a sense that Isaiah is really describing a much greater war, one which will be waged at the end of history, the Battle of Armageddon. So I want to show you just a few of these passages in Isaiah to give you a sense of how, as you read the Bible, you can see that all of the Bible is written with the end in view and with the fact that the final scenes in world history have been anticipated in advance, not only by visual or by verbal prophecy, but also by visual prophecy or types or by events that are fulfilled in a double way. So look at Isaiah chapter 8, beginning with verse 5. It says, The Lord spoke to me again, because this people has rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloh, and rejoices over reason and the son of Remaliah. In other words, because Judah is not trusting in me, but turning instead to... Syria, and to the northern apostate kingdom. Therefore, the Lord is going to bring against them the mighty floodwaters of the Euphrates. This is referring to Assyria. The king of Assyria, with all of his pomp, it will overflow all its channels, run over all its banks, and sweep on into Judah, swirling over it, passing through it, and reaching up to the neck, that is, up to the city of Jerusalem. This is actually literally what happened under Sennacherib. When the northern kingdom was wiped out, the southern kingdom was swept up to the very neck by the Assyrian army. It goes on to say in verse 8, 
its outspread wings will cover the breadth of your land, Emmanuel. And suddenly we have this word, Emmanuel, God with us, referring to Christ. And verse 9 says, Raise the war cry, you nations, and be shattered. Now, not just Assyria, but other nations are being referred to. Listen, all you distant lands, prepare for battle and be shattered. Devise your strategy, but it will be thwarted. Propose your plan, but it will not stand, for God is with us, Emmanuel. So it seems here that Isaiah is describing the invasion of Judah by Assyria and Sennacherib. But suddenly he leaps into the distant future when the nations of the world will come against the land of Emmanuel, and they will devise their strategy, but it will be thwarted, and they will propose their plans, but the plans will not stand because of Emmanuel, because God is with us, a clear reference to Jesus Christ. So, is Isaiah here leaping forward and thinking about the future? We'll turn over to chapter 11 of Isaiah. This is a clear reference to the Messiah. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, and from his roots a branch will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Now, all of this is about Christ. But then it says he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth, and he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips. He will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness the sash around his waist. Well, this language is used in Revelation chapter 19 to describe the coming of Christ. With justice, he will wage war, it says in Revelation 19. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. Out of his mouth, it says in Revelation chapter 19, will come a two-edged sword with which to strike down the Antichrist and the nations. And Paul said in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, that when Jesus comes again, he will slay the Antichrist with the splendor of his coming and the words of his lips. So Isaiah talks here about the coming of Christ at the end of a decisive battle. And then he goes immediately into describing the kingdom that Christ will set up. He says, the wolf will live with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child shall lead them. And I'll not go on, but he describes here what's going to happen at the end of the age. Now look at chapter 13 and verse 6. Well, for the day of the Lord is near. Now, this is a prophecy against Babylon, and Daniel is looking ahead to the invasion of Judah by Babylon, which would occur after his death. But Babylon is also the code name for the empire of the Antichrist. 
And just as the Lord defeated Babylon and saved his people with uh, the destruction of Babylon and the edict of Cyrus allowing the remnant to go back to Jerusalem, so the Lord is going to defeat the Antichrist and this great coming of Christ at the end of the age with the battle of Armageddon is called the day of the Lord. And Isaiah refers to it here. Well, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. Because of this, all hands will go limp and every heart will melt with fear. Terror will seize them. Pain and anguish will grip them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another, their faces aflame. All of this is a picture that is reflected in the book of Revelation. Verse 9, see the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land desolate and to destroy the sinners within it. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their sins. I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and the humble, the pride of their ruthlessness. And he goes on and describes what, in effect, is the battle of Armageddon. And in verse 19, Babylon, the jewel of kingdoms, the pride and glory of the Babylonians, will be overthrown by God like Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, all of this is fulfilled in a more immediate way in Old Testament days, but in an ultimate way at the coming of Christ at the Battle of Armageddon. Now, two other passages, and then I'll leave the rest to you. Look at chapter 14, beginning with verse 4. Chapter 14 and verse 4. You will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. Now, this is again a reference to the Babylon of the Old Testament period, but also this, especially this chapter, projects forward. This is very significant, and I want to read it, and we'll just discuss it a little bit. Isaiah said, one day you're going to take up this taunt against the king of Babylon, how the oppressor has come to an end, how his fury has ended. The Lord has broken the rod of the wicked, the scepter of the rulers, which in anger struck down peoples with unceasing blows and in fury subdued nations with relentless aggression. All the lands are at rest and at peace. They break into singing, even the junipers and the cedars of Lebanon gloat over you and say, now that you have been laid low, no one comes to cut us down. This is referring to the king of Babylon, but also to someone else? Look at verse 9. The realm of the dead below you is all astir to meet you at its coming. It rouses the spirits of the departed to greet you, all those who are leaders in the world. It makes them rise from their thrones. All those who are kings over the nations, they will respond and say to you, you also have become weak as we are. You have become like us. Now, this is remarkable. There's going to come an individual who one day will be cast into hell. He'll be the greatest of all of the rulers of this wicked world. And yet, when he arrives in hell, 
All of the past world rulers will rise up from their desperate thrones of torment, and they will say, look at you. You're the greatest man in the world, and now you're as miserable as we are. Verse 11, all your pomp has been brought down to the grave along with the noise of your harps. Maggots are spread out beneath you, and worms cover you. How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth, you who were once laid low among the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly on the utmost heights of Mount Zephon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High, but you are brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. Now, almost all Bible scholars say this is Satan. This is a reference to Satan. And I think that it is. But I think there's a little bit more to it than that. Look at verse 16. Those who see you will stare at you. They ponder your fate. Is this the man who shook the earth and made the kingdoms tremble? The man who made the world a wilderness, who overthrew the cities and would not let his captives go home? So I'm not going to read the rest of it. But you see, this is referring not just about Lucifer, the son of the morning, and Satan, but about his earthly representative, the Antichrist. I believe that chapter 14 is a clear reference not only to the king of Babylon of Old Testament days, and not only to the devil, Lucifer himself, but to the Antichrist of the end times, who will be brought low at the Battle of Armageddon with the coming of Jesus Christ. Now, one last passage is in chapter 24 of Isaiah. I could take you all the way through Isaiah, through Ezekiel, through many of the minor prophets. I mean, this entire scenario is foreseen in so many different passages. But look at chapter 24. And it seems to me this is a clear reference to the Battle of Armageddon. See, the Lord is going to lay waste the earth and devastate it. He will ruin its face and scatter its inhabitants. It will be the same for priest as for the people, for the master as for the servant, for the mistress as for her servant, for seller as for buyer, for borrower as for lender, for debtor as for creditor. The earth will be completely laid waste and totally plundered. The Lord has spoken this word. I think this is a reference to the Battle of Armageddon or the last three and a half years of tribulation, or what the book of Revelation talks about as the pouring out of seven bowls of wrath. Look at verse 4. The earth dries up and withers, the world languishes and languishes and withers, the heavens languish with the earth. The earth is defiled by its people. They have destroyed and disobeyed the laws, violated the statutes, and broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse consumes the earth. Its people must bear their guilt. Therefore, earth's inhabitants are burned up and very few are left. Go down to verse number 14. Now suddenly, something is going to change. They, that is, the people of Israel as they are saved at the return of Christ, 
they raise their voices and they shout for joy. From the west, they acclaim the Lord's majesty. Therefore, in the east, give glory to the Lord. Exalt the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. In the islands of the sea, from the ends of the earth, we hear singing glory to the righteous one. So you can go through the Bible, you can read in the Old Testament about the coming day of the Lord, and you'll find that very often there is the description of a great foe against God's people who seem to subdue the people of the Lord and to devastate the land, but somehow God breaks through and he prevails, and it's simply a pre-incarnation or pre-enactment or early fulfillment of what the Bible has to say in a more significant and ultimate way about the ending of Earth's history. The Battle of Armageddon, the final three and a half years of great tribulation, the pouring out of the seven bowls of wrath, and the devastation upon an evil world as the decks are cleared and the way prepared for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, when it seems the earth is beginning to be absolutely consumed with weapons of mass, uh, mass destruction in a way that disturbs us for the sake of our children and grandchildren, when we are living in evil days as we are, then let's lift up our heads. Remember that God has a plan. He is going to usher in his kingdom. He's going to rapture his church. He's going to devastate the evil of the world. He's going to bring multitudes of people to himself. He's going to pour out an ultimate day of Pentecost on the people of Israel. He's going to win the victory. He's going to establish his kingdom. And then he's going to usher in eternity as we read about in Revelation 21 and 22. The Lord has his plan. And for all of us who may be fearful, we are in his hand. You are in his omnipotent hand. Jesus died and rose again. And his blood is a covering, a protection, a shield, a hedge around you and me. We have safety. We are hidden with Christ in God. And he is going to rack his will upon this earth and usher us into eternity, into paradise, into new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth. And the book of Revelation lays it out for us as the culmination of all biblical prophecy. Well, if you want to know more and study more about this, then check out my book and also my video series, The 50 Final Events in World History. This book is available wherever you buy books. It's also available in audio version. I read the manuscript on audio uh, myself. Uh, for better or worse, you get my voice with it. It's also available in Kindle. It's being published and translated soon into Portuguese and Spanish. And it's very appropriate, I think, for uh, small group Bible studies or for individual study or for church-wide campaigns, the 50 final events in world history. And I hope that it will give you, and this series of podcasts will give you a love and an interest in prophetic literature in the Bible. Next time, 
I want to go with you into the book of Revelation and discuss the first half of Revelation chapter 1, the prologue of the book of Revelation. This podcast is produced by Joshua Rowe and his company, Clearly Media. Audio editing is done by Courtney Warner. Other editing by Luke Tyler and Sherry Anderson. The music is by Elijah Rowe. And this is Robert Morgan. May God bless you until we meet again.